an important day on the Christian calendar. There are two verses that I want to kind of bring together for us before we get going this morning, and one of them is Jesus' prayer in John 17, that we would all be one as he and the Father are one. Uh, and the other verse that I want to um, bring to your attention is that um, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and check this out, you are a holy nation. Paul said it this way, our citizenship is in heaven. And heaven is expressed here on earth through the church, the body of Christ. And the church has a calendar that's different than America's calendar. And today is called Christ the King Sunday. And next Sunday is a new year. Now, you may think it's December 3rd. I grew up thinking it was December 3rd. But the fact is, next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent. And Advent is the beginning of the church calendar, which is different than the civic calendar. The civic calendar starts January 1st. The church calendar starts the first Sunday of Advent as we await the coming of the King. And so today is Christ the King Sunday. And the church, what I love about it is that Jesus' prayer in many ways is answered on days like this because whether you're Catholic or you're Methodist or you're Lutheran or you're Nazarene, all of these different groups celebrate Christ the King Sunday. It's a way to bring the people of God together under the headship and the rulership of Jesus and celebrate the fact, remind ourselves that even if things are falling apart in the Middle East, even if things are crazy in Washington and they can't tell one way from the next, even if your neighborhood or your town or your job is upside down, there's something we need to remember today and that Jesus is still king. He's not king because we voted him in. He's not following polls to see what's popular and what people like. His love is relentless and can't be bought, can't be bought off. And so before we get into the word this morning, I just want to take a few moments and just, I was sitting here and I had this crazy thought and I thought, Holy Spirit, I don't know if that's you. And... I just thought, you know what, I'm going to take a risk and see if it is, and we're going to hope for the best here. Um, because a song came into my head, and I'm certainly not going to put this on Naomi, and I haven't played it in a minute. Um, but here's what I would like you to do. I would like you to close your eyes, and I would just like you to take a deep breath. And I would just like you to take a moment to think about the fact that Jesus is king. Whatever is pressing on you, whatever is concerning you, whatever is worrying you, just keep those eyes closed and just focus on and just thank Jesus that he rules, that he's a king. Oh, yeah. 
the glory. Come on and worship him this morning. Exalt him this morning. Put your hands together and bless him this morning. He is the almighty and he is the everlasting God. God, we praise you today because it is your will to restore all things in your well-beloved Son, who is the King of kings. He is the Lord of glory. We ask today that you would mercifully grant that all of the people of the earth who are divided and enslaved by sin would be set free, that we would be brought together under the reign of Jesus who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever, and all of God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. You may be seated. We have a great king this morning, don't we? And he deserves our devotion. He deserves our affection. And we bless him today in the house. We bless him. I'm trying to get this, does not want to, there we go, I don't want, I want to set my timer nice and short so we can get out and everybody will still be happy with me, there we go, 10 minutes and we're good to go. If you have your Bible, I'm going to invite you to open it to Genesis chapter 50. We are still in our series, Lessons from the Life of Joseph. And today we will be looking at the power, I'm sorry, um, the pardon test, the pardon test. And 
Uh, in Genesis 50, we're going to be reading one of the most famous scenes in Joseph's story, starting at verse 15. It says, When Joseph's brothers had seen that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph holds a grudge? Everybody say, holds a grudge. What if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back in full for all the wrong which we did to him? So they sent instructions to Joseph, saying, Your father commanded us before he died, saying, This is what you shall say to Joseph. Please forgive, I beg you, the offense of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. And now, please forgive the offense of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came after the messengers and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in God's place? Let that sit in your soul for a second. Am I in God's place? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to keep many people alive. So therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Today is the pardon test. In essence, it is the test of forgiveness. The test of forgiveness. In essence, the question is, are we able to forgive those who've wronged us? I feel like this is a poignant sermon after we all spent time at the Thanksgiving dinner table with someone who might have offended you. Just saying. I think a lot of the fighting on Black Friday is just the venting of frustration from Thanksgiving Thursday. But before we go any further, I think it's important that we offer a very quick Note, and it's a critical note, and that is this. Please hear me when I say this. Feeling hurt or being offended is not the same thing as being wronged. This, I, I cannot tell you, I'm 51 years old. I have worked in the ministry full time for 30 years of those 51 years. And here's what I want to tell you. Christians are not exempt from being offended. But just because your nose is bent out of shape doesn't mean somebody punched you. This is incredibly important because sometimes we're looking for an apology that is not due. And we're harboring an offense, not tending a wound. This is so important because I think there are people that you're waiting to come and ask for your forgiveness because you presume they did something wrong because your feelings are hurt. 
And the enemy will have a field day in your mind convincing you that they are not in God's will because they have not come and repented of the wrong that in reality they never committed. They just offended your ego. They just failed to meet your expectations. They snubbed you at the door, quote unquote. Oh, this happens in church all the time. Oh, they, they, didn't, they just walked right past me. Last I checked, that is not a sin. Emotional wounds often reveal our own emotional health, emotional intelligence, and spiritual maturity. In other words, the person who is emotionally healthy, emotionally intelligent, spiritually mature, rarely gets offended. Because their default is humility, their default is grace, their default is to follow the golden rule and do unto others as you would have done unto you. And what does that look like? Assuming the best. How much of our frustration and disappointment and offense would melt away in the burning, glorious, beautiful sunlight of humility and grace and presuming the best of other people's intentions and instead, we walk around saying, I hope they're listening to this sermon about forgiveness. Think about it. Jesus was offensive. Jesus was offensive. Did Jesus commit a sin? So where was the problem? With the Pharisees, with the Sadducees, with the scribes with the people who didn't understand what Jesus was doing, so they took offense at him. It doesn't mean Jesus did something wrong because the Pharisees had their britches up in a snit. Think about it. Jesus went so far as to say in Matthew 11 and 6, blessed is the one who is not offended in me. What is he saying? He's saying, chances are you're going to be offended if you're listening closely to what I'm saying. I am going to put you out. It doesn't mean I did something wrong. My dad told me something when I was about 18 years old, and it stuck with me for the rest of my life. He attributed it to Billy Graham, so let's leave it there with Billy Graham. It was a Sunday morning. My uncle, who was also a part of the church, happened to be a jerk. I say that tongue-in-cheek. I love my uncle, but he's a human being. He's a sinner. And that particular Sunday morning, he was really up in his full sinful mode, and he got under my skin to the point that I was walking in the front door, and a rarity, my father never did this, he was standing at the front door before the service, and he was greeting people. My dad, was that was not his thing. He happened to be there under appointment of the Holy Ghost, I come to find out, because he saw my face coming up the block. And I got to the door, and, he, and this is also not my father. It might have even been just for this moment in this message, because I don't think I've ever shared this with anybody. My dad never stood at the door, and my dad is not particularly attentive to the feelings of other people. That's not his strength. And I walked up to the door, and he said, Mark, what does it matter? And I said, well, ba, 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 and I went down the list. And he cut me off. And he said, Mark, I heard something from Billy Graham. And he said, I think this is for you. God is not so much concerned about what happens to you as he is with what happens to you when it happens to you.
God is not so much concerned with what happens to you as he is with what happens to you when that happens to you. Do you pass the pardon test? So let's ask a couple of quick questions. Let's give an overview of the text, and then let's get three words that will be very helpful. Maybe fourth if I'm feeling lucky. What does it mean to forgive? What does it mean to forgive? The English dictionary will tell you that it means to absolve fully and release from punishment. Straightforward. The Hebrew word for forgive is sa, and it comes from the root word nasa. What does it mean? Oddly enough, it means to lift something up, to take away, especially to lift something up in order to hold it, carry it away. So in other words, when a person confesses their sin or asks for forgiveness or the wrong that they've done, what they do is they put the wrong on the scales of justice, if you will, to be found guilty. To forgive is to take it off the scales. There's nothing, because what happens, you know the scales, like back in old science class, you'd have, put something there and then you'd put the weights on the other side and measure it out? The scales of justice basically say, here is the wrong, here is the punishment to pay the penalty for the wrong. If nothing is on the one side of the scale, where does the punishment go? There's nowhere for it to go. Nasa in Hebrew says, I'm going to reach up on the scales of justice and I'm going to take the wrong off the scale so there's no need to put punishment down. Does that make sense? Okay. But we have to understand there's a psychological dimension to forgiveness. I don't think I'm saying anything that's radical here. We all know that when we're offended, when we're hurt, when somebody has wronged us, our mind goes 100 miles an hour. And listen, it, if our mind, if our sense of offense could power energy, we would solve the energy crisis instantly. Have you ever found that your body's ability to hold a grudge for decades is really unmatched? And here's what we understand psychologically. When we forgive, we go on record. We're making an official statement as promising not to remember one's sins against him anymore. Now let's stop here and look at me for a second. This is not the simplistic forgive and forget situation. That's not what they mean by the word remember here in a psychological sense. I really want you to think of remembering as almost like Legos, like membering, like putting together. Here's the offense, here's the offender. I'm not putting those two things together. I'm not remembering those things, okay? This means that we will neither bring it up nor use it against him, the offender. We promise not to bring it up to him, to others, or to ourselves, Okay, and here we go. Forgiveness may be granted whether we feel like it or not. Because since it is essentially a promise and not a feeling. Keeping the promise will in time change the feelings. This is a decision and a discipline. It is not a feeling, an emotion, an instinct, an urge. It is, for Christians, it is the Holy Spirit 
speaking to you, saying, take it off the scales. It is the Holy Spirit saying, don't connect this action with this person anymore moving forward. It is not the Holy Spirit saying, pretend it didn't happen. You can forgive somebody and still be angry with them, but not let the anger determine your future. Now, let's look at the text, an overview of the text. Genesis 50 is honestly a recap of Genesis 45. You'll remember Genesis 45 is the big reveal, right? The brothers have come to Egypt, and they're looking for food because they're starving in Canaan. Joseph is second in command in Egypt. He looks like an Egyptian. He talks like an Egyptian. They don't recognize him because he's been gone for 13 years. And the 13 years happen to be between the ages of 17 and 30. How many of you know people change a lot between 17 and 30? It's much different than 30 and 43. 17 and 30, lots of changes. They don't even know what's going on. They're scared to death of him, not because they think it's Joseph, just because he's a powerful Egyptian in their mind. He reveals himself, and everybody has this big family reunion. They're crying. They're slobbering. It's emotional. It's intense. It's amazing. But it's really not because we understand that these brothers never really forgot what they did. This is important to note. Offenders, the person who's in the wrong, they will keep that with them. They may bury it in their subconscious in order to cope and function. But all it takes is one revelation, and it comes right back. That's what happened in Genesis 45. And in Genesis 45, Joseph says, it's good. Here we are. Look at this. Yo, I made it. I'm the, t- I'm the dog, right? He's like, I'm the guy, man. It's all good. It worked out. That was Genesis 45. And here we are on the other side of, this is 20 years later now. So between Genesis 45 and Genesis 50 is 20 years. So <laughs> Joseph has now been sitting in his position for a minute. Jacob, their father, has died. And the psychology of the text is unbelievable. Don't be put off by this word or this idea because the fact is, the Bible tells us what? Guard your heart with all diligence. Why? Because out of it flow all of the issues of life. The heart is not a Valentine's Day hallmark heart. It's your soul. It's your bowels. It's your inner self. Jesus said it this way, it's not what goes into the mouth of a man that defiles him, but what comes out of the heart of a man. It's, he's talking the same thing. This is your psyche. Whenever you see the word soul in the Bible, it's the Greek, way, Greek word suke, which is where we get psychology. okay? And what you have to understand is when we're dealing with wrong, offense, sin against another person, There is a psychological element to this, not just a spiritual element. And the church has failed, in my opinion, to help the saints understand the psychological dimensions of what's happening in hurt, offense, sin, forgiveness, restoration, moving on, all of that. We gloss what we say, come to the altar. Have you tried that? Listen, it works, but it's never meant to be the catch-all, end-all. 
Paul didn't say go to the altar. He said work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So, what we see here is that the brothers decide they're going to make up a story. Overwhelmingly, all theological scholars, whether they're Jewish, Messianic, uh, ancient church fathers, contemporary biblical scholars, the overwhelming consensus, which is a rare thing in the scholarly world, the overwhelming consensus is these brothers are completely lying. They made up a story. Oh, before he died, your father, you notice the psychology of that? It's not our father, it's your father. Pay attention to the way people talk to you because what they did in that moment is they put distance between themselves and Joseph. They're saying, we're not family. And in the end, the whole purpose of this conversation they have is not restoration, it's self-preservation. Because he doesn't, they don't say in the end, we want to be family. They don't say, we want to be brothers, we're brothers, we want to live like brothers. They say, we want to be your slaves. You know what that sounds a lot like? It sounds like the prodigal son. The prodigal son is in a pigsty. He has an epiphany and says, wait a minute. My dad's slaves live better than me right now. I'm going to go back and think about it. He rehearses the conversation, right? He gets his monologue prepared. He says, I'm going to see my father, and I'm going to say, I am not worthy to be called your son. If you will just take me back in, I will be your slave. And, of course, we know the story. The father says, I'm not going to hear of any of this. My son who I lost, has come back to me. Get my robe, get my ring, kill the fatted calf. The father will hear nothing of the distance because of sin. But there's a human inclination to create the distance. And so Joseph's brothers, in addition to making up a story, their story includes details and clues that help us understand where their head is at. Oh, your father, before he died, and notice they're not even saying it. They send messengers. They send a telegram. They send an email. Have you ever done that? I don't want to talk to them, and I'll send them a text. Don't let your iPhone replace I. That was corny, but I had to say it. you got to remember something. These brothers were motivated by their fear of death, not their conviction of sin. They thought Joseph was going to kill them, and their apology was not about restoration, not about reconciliation, not about the fact that they had been horrible. It was about they wanted to live to see another day. This is manipulation, not confession. Now, you'll notice here, it says in verse... uh, Now I lost my spot. Uh, the end of verse 17, it says, Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Why does Joseph weep? Joseph weeps because after 20 years, it's become abundantly clear that they don't believe him and they don't trust him. Joseph weeps because, guys, we dealt with this five chapters ago. Why are you still coming here making... Joseph knows this is complete nonsense. Why are you calling him my father? He's our father. Why are you offering to be slaves? You're my brothers. We dealt with this 20 years ago. And you're coming back out of fear that you think I'm the monster you are. 
What's interesting is these servants now, these slaves, it says they prostrate themselves in verses 18 and 19. They fall down before him. In essence, they are, first of all, treating Joseph not as their brother, but they're also, the reason Joseph says, am I in the place of God, is because they've assumed a, a, a posture of worship. Why? Pharaoh was God. These brothers, and here's what we want to take away from this. A lot of the time, people who come to us and they make a confession or they make an apology or they ask for forgiveness, their motives are all wrong. Their intentions are all wrong. And if you listen closely to what they say, it's a mess. They're treating you the way you have no business. They flatter you. Have you ever been flattered and you can feel somebody's trying to manipulate you? Have you, anybody been? Shoo! Especially when somebody's done something wrong and then suddenly, oh, well, I know, you know, you're just, you're so amazing. It's like, what? Suddenly, what? Here's what we need to understand. And this is one of the more important points I want to make today. Pardon is possible because of God's goodness, not the quality of the confession. If you make pardon contingent upon the purity of the confessor, you will never extend it. Joseph plainly calls out. I love this. We always kind of, I think, with verses in particular that we're very familiar with, we just fly through them, and we can kind of miss the weight of what's happening. And I encourage people to read to the punctuation. So there's a comma here that's worth pausing at. And he says, what you meant for evil, comma. He identifies not only what they did, but their intentions behind it. You meant to do evil. <laughs> he's not like that simple clause we could just fly through it because what do we want to get to but God meant it for good <laughs> right we want to get to the fact that God's goodness is unrelenting God can't be stopped if God is for me who can be against me? that's what we want to get to that part and we miss over the fact he called those jokers out and said, you had evil intentions when you did what you did. But the fact is the evilness of your intention could not overcome the goodness of God's intention. And I am free to forgive you because I know God's goodness is greater than your evil. The goodness of God is the foundation and it is the enablement of our pardon, not the quality of the confession being offered to us. Well, you know what? I'm just not going to forgive them because they didn't mean it. These guys are lying through their teeth. And listen to this. They're using the memory of their dead father to try and manipulate their brother, not because they care about him, but because they care about themselves. And the most powerful text and verse out of the story of Joseph comes in response to that nonsense. What would 99 out of 100 Christians done if they had been faced with lying, deceiving, manipulative brothers who refused to believe that you were actually a good person? And they were lying under the pretense of apology when all they were looking to do was save their own skin again. 
Would I have turned around and said, what you meant for evil, God meant that for good. And God's purposes are bigger than what's happening right here. So I'm going to give you three words. We're going to go through them pretty quickly. Three words that I think will help us pass the very challenging pardon test. We're going to do a little bit of reverse engineering. We're going to begin at the act of pardon, the act of forgiveness. And this first word is release. Forgiveness is not possible without generosity. What's at the heart of the word forgiveness? Give. So here's the thing. Chances are, if you struggle with forgiveness, you're a stingy person in the rest of your life. Why are people stingy? There are a host of reasons, but one of the most common reasons people are stingy is fear of lack. And when we lack, in essence, we have no control over outcomes. If you've ever been in a moment when your bank account is empty and you're not getting paid for five days, you feel powerless. What happens when somebody asks you for forgiveness and in order to do that, you have to empty your bank account? We withhold forgiveness because holding on to the offense gives us power over the person. And the fear of losing that power keeps us from forgiving. We're stingy. In the act of releasing, here's what happens. The debt that is owed is lifted. It is taken off of the offender's account, and it's done so at your expense. You ever hear the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? Gandhi has messed that phrase up for a lot of people because he's famous for saying something to this effect. Eye for an eye and the whole world walks around blind. It sounds clever, but it's nonsense, and I'm going to tell you why. He doesn't understand why God said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's because he said, God is saying to people, when it comes to justice, you cannot overreach. Listen. If you put out somebody's eye, we, we got to think about it this way. If you're the offender and you put out somebody's eye, you're pretty grateful they can't take off your head. And that's what I want to say to Gandhi. If it wasn't for an eye to eye for an eye, the world would be empty because we would kill each other in the name of justice. Eye for an eye puts a limit. Forgiveness says justice loses. The act of forgiveness is the foregoing of justice. The act of forgiveness says, I'm going to walk around with an eye patch while you walk around with two eyes. Now you know why generosity is so important. You say, Pastor Mark, I think you're lying right now. I think, I don't know. I don't think Pastor Terry should bring it back. That, that doesn't sound right to me. There's a line in the book of James that is worth underlining, marking, 
maybe putting a little something next to it. It's James chapter 2 and verse 13. In the last line of the verse, and I am not taking it out of context. Oh, look at this. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. But look at this. Mercy triumphs over justice. To be a follower of Jesus is to live a life of grace. And grace defies justice. Grace looks justice in the face and says, not today. Now, we love that when we receive that. But do we want to turn around and give that? You see, forgiveness is going to challenge every carnal instinct you have, every selfish bone in your body. For those of us that still have them, you're going to be tweaked. Forgiveness is a rebellious act in a culture that is looking out for number one. Now, the most helpful analogy I've ever heard, and the, one of the most scary passages about forgiveness is found in Matthew 18. Let's look there really quickly. I'm going to try to do this fast, friends. I am. In Matthew 18, Jesus tells the parable. I'd invite you to read it this afternoon because it's the parable of the unforgiving servant. And this is the man who had been forgiven about a $10,000, significant $10,000 debt. Uh, I'm sorry. He had been forgiven, I believe the number is uh, over $100 million. That's what it was. He had been forgiven a $100 million debt. Uh, simply, and again, that's complete injustice. If somebody owed you a hundred bucks, and, and, and they looked at you and said, well, I shouldn't have to pay you back. You'd be like, that's wrong. If somebody owed you a million bucks, if somebody owed you a hundred million bucks, and for you to just turn around and say, it's good. Forgiveness will cost you something. It requires generosity. The king relieves this man of his $100 million debt. He gets out of debtor's prison and finds a dude who owes him 100 bucks. And he says, give me my 100 bucks." He's like, bro, I don't have 100 bucks, and there's no ATMs. It's like AD 32. What are you talking about? So he's like, that's it. And he drags him, and he throws him into the debtor's prison that the first dude just left. King finds out. Read the story. It's amazing. In verse 32 of Matthew 18 things start to get very personal for us. It says, summoning him, his master said, you wicked slave, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way I had mercy on you? His master moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he would repay all that was owed him. P.S. Side note. It was impossible for him to repay it. That's the point of this. But look at verse 35. Everybody be prepared to get very put out. My heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother. Look at this. From your heart. N.T. Wright, New Testament scholar commenting on this, gives us hope and clarity, I think, on how do we understand this. He said, forgiveness is a lot like air in your lungs. 
There's only room for you to inhale the next lungful when you've just breathed out the previous one. If you insist on withholding it, refusing to give someone else the kiss of life they may desperately need, you won't be able to take any more in yourself, and you will suffocate very quickly. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is you will not be able to inhale the forgiveness of God if you refuse to exhale the forgiveness of your fellow man. God is not being punitive. It is the nature of generosity. If you will not breathe out the kiss of forgiveness and absolution to your offender, you cannot breathe in the forgiveness and the grace and the mercy of God. Release. Everybody say release. The second word is receive. It can be challenging for us to receive forgiveness. You know, there's that guy who was abusive to his wife, and he pushed her, and he shoved her, and he crossed the line, and she was angry, and he looked at her, and he's like, just punch me in the face. What is he saying? He's saying, let me atone for my own sins here. Hurt me because I hurt you. Let's put everything up on the scales and even it out. What is that? That is the desire that sits inside of many of us to fix ourselves, to save ourselves, to absolve ourselves of our own sins. There's a lot of pride sitting under that, animating that. It's humiliating for the proud soul to receive a handout. We're continuing the generosity theme. Have you ever been in a situation where you were broke and you needed money? Did you want to go and ask somebody? Not me. I remember early in my marriage, I was hardly making any money. I was working as a staff pastor at a church, and we were not good with our bills and things like that, and the oil tank got empty, and it was just as empty as my checking account. Not only that, I found out through a whole host of situations, we owed the oil company $3,000. So as a 24-year-old boy, I got to go to my dad, tail between my legs, crying like a baby, utterly humiliated. Why? Because it can be very challenging to receive somebody else's generosity. I'm not good enough. I disqualified myself. I don't deserve it. I can do it myself. I can fix this. All of these things are obstacles to receiving. How about this one? It's too good to be true. It couldn't be possible. And here's something we need to understand. Withholding forgiveness from other people is justified, we use that by our own self-atonement. In other words, I don't have to forgive you because I didn't need forgiveness from anybody. Oh, come on, saints. One person said it this way. When it comes to other people, we are judges. But when it comes to ourselves, we are lawyers. 
In other words, when it comes to you, I'm throwing the book at you. But when it comes to me, I'm going to find every loophole in that book, and I'm getting out tonight scot-free, no bail. You know it ain't a lie. It is not a lie. And that's one of the reasons we don't want to receive forgiveness. Because when we receive forgiveness, we're now obligated to forgive others. Just like that man who came out of the debtor's prison. Some of us would rather stay in prison than step out and have to extend that grace to others. Our third word, believe. Okay? We release. The only reason we have something to release is because we've already received. What did Jesus say in the, in the, the, the prayer that he gave his disciples in uh, Matthew chapter 6 and verse 12? He says this. He says, forgive us our debts. And what's the next word? As. As. What does the word as mean in English? It means this. In the same way. Or like. Forgive us like I forgive other people. You like that prayer? I do not like that prayer. It makes it, what it, the word as is a conditional word. Jesus said, don't ask God for one-sided blanket con, uh, forgiveness. Ask God for conditional forgiveness. Forgive me the way I forgive other people. You can only release people if you've received the forgiveness of God. You can only give what you have. What did Jesus say? Freely you have received, freely give. This is not just about money. This is about forgiveness. We receive because we believe we come to terms with the generosity of God towards us. How do we do it? Scripture. We'll do this lightning round. Who's my sword drill people? Where are you all at? Psalm 103. We sing it all the time. Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. You all ready? Psalm 103. What does he say in verse 12? As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our wrongdoings from us. Oh, you all missed a chance. I'm sorry. I should have given you a heads up. Get ready to say amen. Get your amen out of the holster. Are you ready? We're going to read the verse again. This is a matter of life and death. You should have all stepped up to the plate. I don't judge you. Here we go again. You know what? Let's go to the verse before. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our wrongdoings from us. All right, in 1 John chapter 1, in verse 9, you know it. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous so that he will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. All right, we're getting there, warming up a little bit. Here's your third and final try. High Street Worship Center, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, looking at verse 21. He made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You are righteous, you are forgiven, and your sin is nowhere to be found. Do you believe it? 
If you believe God is telling the truth, you can receive forgiveness when you ask for it. When you receive that forgiveness you've requested, you can turn around and release it to other people who've done it to you. But here's our last surprise word. Surprise word is this, perceive. Perceive. The bottom line is, Passing the pardon test begins with fixing our eyes on Jesus. It has to be said. Because what we're suggesting this morning is not humanly possible. The human condition is so marred and sin sick that this generosity, this open handedness, this absolute trust that I can release it because God's going to come on the backside with more for me and provide for me and cover me. He's my front guard, my rear guard. He's my shield. He's my buckler. The only way that I can step into this kind of ridiculous forgiveness that looks justice in the face and says, I don't need you. We've got this over over here with grace. God, you know, you're good. The only way we get to this point is if we do what the writer of Hebrews says in the second verse of the 12th chapter, looking only at Jesus, the originator, the pioneer and perfecter of the faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, not the shamer. I would be on the cross despising the shamer, despising the executioner. Jesus despised the shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You and I are not capable of forgiving if we're not looking. If we cannot perceive the man of sorrows hanging on the tree, we will look at our neighbor and see an enemy. Passing the pardon test begins with fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is the fullness of God's generosity. For God so loved the world, he gave not money but his son. He knew that in his son the fullness of the Godhead would dwell bodily according to Colossians chapter 1. I just have to send my son. I'm big enough, I'm rich enough, I'm full enough, I cannot be diminished or taken away from or added to or subtracted from. I can give all of heaven for you. That's what we see in Jesus. We're trying to give to stir up something inside of us. I've got to look outside of myself and see something bigger than me, better than me, the ideal that I'm called to be, and his name is Jesus. What do I see when I look at the man of sorrows? I see a man who from the cross says these words in Luke 23 and 34. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Forgiveness from Jesus comes to those who aren't smart enough to ask for it. I can't forgive the person who comes genuinely seeking reconciliation. Jesus forgave the person who didn't even know they needed it. You see, when I see that man, I'm transformed. When I see that man, I'm conformed. When I see that man, I am healed, I'm restored. The human I was made to be can suddenly come up. The one who is the Son of God is also the Son of Man. And the Son of God became the Son of Man so that the sons of men could become sons of God. 
I'm looking at Jesus. I'm not stirring up my faith. I'm looking at Jesus. I'm not trying to be more determined. I'm looking at Jesus because he's the one who said, Father, forgive them. He's the one who is the generosity of God expressed in the flesh. And John said in 1 John 3 and 2 that when we see him, we shall be like him. Now, just to be clear, that is an eschatological text talking about the fullness of times when we will see him. But I'm convinced I can get a glimpse of him now. I'm convinced I can look at Scripture through the lens of the Spirit. I'm convinced I can look into the eyes of the poor and the downtrodden, and I can see Jesus. And if I see Jesus now, I'll become a little bit more like him right now. This is why we read the Bible. Sorry, I'm going to pull the rug out because I'm feeling hot right now. It's not basic instructions before leaving life. It's not a map that you can get into the kingdom. The Bible is the story of God with the people of God ultimately revealing the Son of God whose name is Jesus. It's why Jesus said in Luke 24, beginning with the law and the prophets, he spoke to them all things pertaining to himself. It's not about me getting to heaven. It's about heaven getting into me and his name is Jesus. I don't pass the pardon test because I'm trying hard. I don't pass the pardon test because I made up my mind. I pass the pardon test because I saw Jesus. We close in Acts chapter 7. There's a, a, a deacon named Stephen. Stephen has been a faithful witness of this sacrificed Savior. He's brought before the leaders of Israel. He's put on trial, and he tells the story of Israel as his defense. And in verse 54, it says, When they heard his testimony, they were infuriated, and they began gnashing their teeth at him. Now look at this. But he, being filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently into heaven, and what does it say? He saw. Everybody shout, he saw. He saw the glory of God. What was the glory of God? The glory of God was Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Somebody say he saw him. You remember what we read in Hebrews chapter 12? Fixing your eyes on Jesus as the pioneer and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy before, set before him, he despised the shame, endured the cross, and has now sat down at the right hand of God of the throne of God. But when Stephen looks up, Jesus is not sitting. When you're ready to follow the footsteps of Jesus through his suffering, Jesus will get up off of his throne. And you'll see a vision of the lamb slain, raised on the third day, standing at the right hand of God, and what happens? He said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they didn't see it. They shouted with loud voices and covered their ears and rushed at him with one mind. Let me tell you, unity is not always a good thing. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now look at this. They went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. What does that sound like right there? Good Friday. Jesus says, into thy hands I commit 
my spirit. Oh, it gets better. Verse 60, then he fell on his knees and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The forgiveness in verse 60 is only possible because of his perception in verse 55. He saw Jesus in verse 55 and he looked at his executioners in verse 60 and said the same things Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them. You want the world to see Jesus? It's not going to be because they heard me preach. It's going to be because they saw us forgive. How do I know it? Because Saul, who stood there in a position of authority, the one before whom they laid their cloaks in chapter 9 and in verse 5, a bright light, non-personal, not identified. What's the word that comes out of his mouth? Lord, who are you? Why would Paul refer to the light as Lord if he hadn't already seen it back in chapter 7 when Stephen was standing in front of him? John Chrysostom, the golden-tongued preacher of the church, said it this way, Nothing makes us so like God as our readiness to forgive the wicked and the wrongdoer. People want to see Jesus? You see it in Joseph standing in Pharaoh's court, looking at undeserving, wicked, self-serving brothers and extending forgiveness. You see it in Jesus being wrongly murdered on a cross by Roman soldiers at the behest of Jewish leadership and saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You see it in a deacon named Stephen who's being stoned for being a witness of Jesus. And the last words he says are, do not hold this sin against them. Let's pray.